everybody, and welcome back to Ear Read This. I'm Ash, your host, and following on from yesterday's episode on Sylvia Plath's poem, The Colossus, today I am once again joined by Amanda Golden to talk more about Plath and Amanda's book, Annotating Modernism. I've left a link in the episode description box if you'd like to buy a copy of the book. I think it's a must-read for any fan of its three main subjects, John Berryman, Anne Sexton, and Plath. But it's a fascinating read for anyone interested in how we as readers interact with the physical artefacts we get our literature in. Amanda doesn't only share the marginalia of these writers, their responses to great works and what caught their eye, but also presents a study of marginalia itself, Different from reflections in a journal, annotations are, as Amanda says, the record of an impulse. As such, they are unpredictable, ranging from frank and unguarded insults to cryptic and spontaneous theses. The writers Amanda looks at don't only share poetry in common, but teaching as well. And I began the second part of our conversation where we left off, by asking about Ted Hughes' experience of teaching in comparison to Plath's. One of the things that struck me reading your book is that the difference in teaching experience that Plath and Plath and Hughes had. Plath seemed to be incredibly diligent and hardworking, and it seemed to present a, a, a portrait of someone working furiously. Whereas Hughes seems to have had a kind of a much easier ride. I remember the the bit you have of him him saying, basically, the money's fantastic, and I, I barely have to. I, I'm only there sort of ten hours a week, kind of thing. Plenty of time to write on the on the sides. It, it does seem like a job to to kind of prop up the poems for him. I think he found some sense of sort of satisfaction in it. Uh, he has that one letter to Olwyn where he felt bringing everything together in the scope of an hour was incredibly satisfying. Like just mm. the idea of thinking and taking apart and putting back together a work and sort of doing it all with with people there, with students, it's probably not something he had thought about planning to do, but it's still, I mean, literary criticism and creative work are different, but I felt like at times when he was talking about text, his work as a creative writer sort of informed that as well. Just spending time with the text and teaching a student how it comes together. It wasn't doing so from the same standpoint as he would as a writer, but I think it benefited from his time as a reader which was informed by his interest as a writer it's it's one of the the marvelous sort of portraits in your book relates to that a bit you you she says uh or she said at one point that she was worried that she was living and teaching on on rereading or the on notes of other people like you say being reading how she was taught to read and and what your your book shows is her sort of moving away from that it's interesting how there is such a contrast between the plath in the margins and the plath we see teaching i've forgotten the name of the student but you you have a student's <laughs> sort of anecdotal uh rec- recounting what plath was like as a teacher which is pretty ferocious <laughs> uh, it, it seems like everyone was pretty terrified of her really i think she was nervous um i think she wanted to be as you know serious as as her teachers had been. Yeah, I published a piece that that student wrote and I, and I added a little bit of information too that regarding some of the references because Plath at times uh, was more creative in how she planned things than she gives herself credit for. And it was interesting because I found that student because Plath had 
written her name in her teaching notes with a note to return her exam because she read her exam aloud as an example. And so it was really wonderful to um, learn from this student. And I was, I would send her things when, when I was working and say, you know, was this the edition that you all used? <laughs> She's like, yeah, I remember it. <laughs> and this um, student had gone on to teach herself. So her memory was a bit stronger than others of, you know, of, of the experience. So that was really wonderful. And we enjoyed that. And um, I think Plath, she would meet with students and she was serious, but uh, I think I think she felt a certain degree of accomplishment teaching too. There's a famous story about how she, this is when she stole all the memorandum paper. I don't know if you know about this, but oh, when, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> when she um, wrote, she wanted to write this novel and she'd been struggling with it since her Cambridge years. And she went and liberated, as one might say, all of this, pink memorandum paper from the history department supply closet to write her novel on and some of her teaching notes are on these pink pages too it was you know official paper so it gave that sort of like that element of it and also to her you know it it symbolized seeing smith officially she was a part of it and she had reached a certain uh, degree of accomplishment both as a student and then being asked back to teach Uh, it was also a nice texture and then later on she writes for more of it and you can see on, she wrote the bell jar on it. And then she wrote some of her poems on the reverse side of the bell jar typescripts. And critics have looked at that. Um, Susan Van Dyne called it back-talking the two <laughs> texts. And, and in particular, she called it that. And others thought about this because Plath did that with her pages. But then she also, at the in the late stages, recycled Hughes's papers. And he recycled some of hers, too, all along. At one point when she's writing Daddy, for instance, she starts working on the back, or she does throughout Ariel, but on Daddy on the back is the pages from Hughes's play, The Calm, as there are on other poems as well. And Linda Bunsen calls The Calm, The Tempest Inside Out. So mm. it's interesting to watch this. I mean, some of it's always random. Some of it's just about paper, but it's interesting to watch. And Hughes has this sort of spiky handwriting too. And Plath is, and it bleeds through at times. The, mm-hmm. the calm is a typescript, but at other times it's his handwriting's on things. And seeing all this play out in the archive is incredibly interesting. Wow. Yeah. It was really interesting in your book, this, the, the a, a kind of recurring theme of uh, your subjects kind of textural appreciation of things and uh, like like Plath not just with the the pink paper but but how she felt about teaching in certain rooms and even certain dresses yeah (laughs) it reminds me as well of uh, you know Kafka comes up a a few times and um, he he I think always always wanted his work printed with as big a margins as possible uh, to let his stories breathe I think is a, is a quote attached to him some somewhere or other that I came across. So I, th- I thought it was interesting that so many people, <laughs> so many people in your book were writing in his margins. I didn't know that, but that's brilliant for Sexton, especially she um, it's interesting with regard to writing in the margins because not everyone does it. It is sort of taboo. It does sort of feel yeah. wrong. Like you're <laughs> writing in a book and of course you should never write in someone else's book or a library book. So Virginia Woolf, for instance, isn't a big annotator. 
she um of course when people said she didn't annotate i had to find out whether she really did and and i went out to her library and i wrote a piece about um her translating because she does write in books when she translates as does one of her characters in the years which got me interested in it but she uses it as like a workbook but plath from an, from early on writes in her books and then her mother actually wrote in some of her books too in shorthand um, when I saw some of them at the Lily Library. It's just a different relation to books. Hughes isn't known for that. He does do it at times later especially when he's writing a review of something so it is sort of work related um, yeah. and Sexton is interesting because she was the question I would ask myself is sort of like how she came to do things that students are taught when she wasn't traditionally thinking of herself as a student or she didn't identify, other people don't identify her as much of a student as a student. But uh, she actually became a student of poetry along the way. And I felt at times when she would make comments about herself, it was almost hiding all of the work that she did um, and creating a sort of image of someone who wasn't as trained partly, you know, out of modesty and partly because she didn't have the background that say someone like Plath did more traditionally. Um, mm. So Sexton had an interesting irreverence, but then her library told a different story as well. And I love how effusive she is too, because that sort of fits well with her poetry and her persona. It's almost like she couldn't hold back, which is also sort of looking for things too. Like that be the, the, in Kafka, the passage she notes is actually in the introduction by a teacher that she had audited a course with that becomes part of her book. And so she was also, I mean, she was sort of doing research, even though at that time she may not have realized it. I mean, she, it was for a purpose or turns out to be for a purpose that she underlines that other times. So she just underlined things like in the Rilke, um, she was underlining um, an introduction um, those were writers she liked and also writers she referred to in her work in epigraphs and such. So, I mean, for her, I found interesting how she was sort of catching up and keeping up with other figures, with Maxine Kuhnman, who had gone to Radcliffe, other people she meets. There's a book that came out uh, this summer called The Equivalence, and it's all about how Sexton was at Radcliffe with these other figures. And it's interesting um, how all of these other figures that she meets along the way influence how she's reading and the traces she leaves and how they like the shape they take i i haven't read very much Anne sexton but from from your portrait of her i felt a great uh sort of kinship with her especially especially at the moment where she says her copy of henderson the rain king is pretty much all <laughs> underlined <laughs> I was like, yeah, we've all had books like Henderson the Ranking is a good example, but books where it's just like, uh, what well, I should just stop underlining it because I'm underlining everything. <laughs> sort of a student thing too, because when you're trying to study and trying, especially things when you were trying to keep focus on things that weren't maybe as interesting, though it's the reverse for, <laughs> for Henderson. But but uh, yeah, I love that moment. I one of my goals was to take Sexton seriously because I feel like sometimes she's been dismissed and her teaching experience was uh, the anchor of that because I actually went to Colgate University um, and knew she had taught there. And it turned out the class I took 
as an undergraduate was in the same room that she taught in. Um, So that really made it um, even more meaningful. And so tracing out all of those links and interviewing some first students and they sent me materials and that was all wonderful. It was an interesting um, seeing too where her teaching notes matched students' own margin notes was interesting confirmation for me because she gave the impression of not having prepared, but actually she may have stayed close to what she prepared. She just was good at it. And some of the time, (laughs) (laughs) some of the time she um, told the same stories she had told elsewhere as part of her repertoire for interviews and readings. So some of that I was interested in how these parallel texts uh, became familiar in a way that she would appear casual, but it was actually studied or just rehearsed and rehearsed and revised over time. I, I, want, I wanted to ask you a bit about how more than one subject in your book seems to be using not just teaching, but, but marginalia as a way of sort of making sense of the war. The, uh, Berryman writes in his uh, copy of D.H. Lawrence, about similarities to Anne Frank's diary and um, Plath is writing a lot about uh, the Holocaust in her own work and also I don't, I don't really have a question other than <laughs> could, could you just tell us a bit more about that because I, I found that really an interesting thread as well. I thought the very main parts about Anne Frank were very interesting. He was sort of interested like many people in what had happened and interested you know in Anne Frank's diary being a text that emerged he had two copies and they're both, the binding I think is broken on both of them and they're sort of both rubber banded together wow. um, in like a little <laughs> pile. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I thought that there was also a resonance with Lady Chatterley too, where he says, just like the end of Lady Chatterley. And I I mean, the, the, there's no comparison between the, the female figures in all those texts, but it's more the sense of the passage to him which is something we do as readers and there's something poets do is there's, there's a sense of things. And so as I would work with libraries, I would look for those kinds of connections, those intertextual references where someone's referring to something else and then you go find the something else. And it's amazing when you can. And I thought that was all incredibly interesting too. Berryman gets, um, is interested in all of this and whenever there's material traces of it, like what he says in his teaching materials, that's, that's all interesting. He was sort of capturing a view of the moment. He wanted to teach courses that weren't as traditionally Anglo-American focused. So he was trying to broaden uh, what he was teaching, not particularly modernism, but some of it ended up being modernism. He was sort of taking a different view. He taught about the Russian Revolution. Uh, he taught Hannah Arendt. So he was sort of broadening in that way too, that it was like, well, these are interesting things that I think go together at this point in time. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how much, there's a new collection of Berryman's letters um, that's out, edited by Philip Coleman and, and Costa McRae that fills out much more. Um, before there was only, as there was initially with Plath, there was only a collection of Berryman's letters to his mother. And now he has so much more. So it's interesting. I haven't finished reading to see how much gets fleshed out in it. Um, regarding all these intellectual threads but he was a fun poet to work on and I didn't I wasn't as immersed in his work before 
But then working with his archive and also working with the materials John Hoffenden collected at Columbia broadened my sense, although it, it's always incomplete. But I, I was impressed with how much you, even in a quick, even in a, in a, in a shorter research visit, um, compared to the time I spent with class materials, you, you get a different sense of things. How did you choose your, uh, which, which way around was it, I suppose, is the question. Did you, did you know you wanted to write about marginalia and needed to find subjects, or did you want to write about these three in particular? One, one figure who would be a good pair is Lowell, but his archive actually isn't as preserved. There's mm. um, some books at Harvard, but then otherwise his library is not in a library. So, so in some ways, Berryman seemed a good place to start because he alludes to so many figures in the dream songs. So mm. I became curious with those references and sort of working backward. And then when I saw the story he wrote about annotating, that was just the de- that sealed the deal because it was just so interesting that he took so much passion and pride in his annotations as as a teacher and he was also a scholar he was also a textual scholar and he would show his marginalia and and you know want students to do the same so I think for me that was a very interesting figure uh to work he was interesting to work on I I find it interesting the the you know showing his marginalia because for so many people it seems like something you know keep very much private and and probably instruct people to burn after after you 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 die no one needs to see that kind of thing and also this interesting thing as well about as you're sort of writing on the artifact you're it's a way of trying to carve the the words of the artifact onto yourself that's that seems to um crop up a couple of times as well i the the bit that's jumped out the most which i i i did laugh at um was uh plath l- looking at what edmund wilson had written i think in <laughs> is it axel axel's castle he, axel's castle yeah he says uh, I, I doubt whether any human memory is capable on a first reading of meeting the demands of ulysses <laughs> to which plath writes poor fools <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah no she wrote yeah there's another one where she writes touche too <laughs> touche yeah <laughs> yeah no um I love that book I didn't at first know of that book and then when I was in graduate school a professor mentioned it and I thought that was something I had to go look at right away because class would have read chapters about the poets and writers she liked like Joyce and Yates and then I had no idea how funny that book would be and it was a book she started <laughs> reading when she was recovering from her breakdown she, re- right. she received it as a gift uh, when she returned home from McLean's uh, for Christmas. And then later, uh, she had encountered it before that as a student, because it's in her, there's references to it in the teaching, in her notes and her teacher's notes. But I had not in- expected that to be such a wide-ranging set of annotations <laughs> um, and and also a wide-ranging set of writers there's parts on Gertrude Stein there's parts on Dada and um you don't have as much information about her reading of other of that of those writers so um seeing the traces of underlining although it's momentary it is a material trace of encounter at one point that I love yes I I found that interesting and and there wasn't some of those references in there too are somewhat intertextual from 
on class lies. Like when she says, yes, like his, re- his lectures at Smith, when she, talk- when she sees I.A. Richards, that was really interesting. And when she identifies a passage with her own life, as she does elsewhere, when she sees in a similar way as Berryman noting the sense of things, she notes various passages that resonate with her experience in uh, the time that she ends up depicting in the bell jar. Um, and it's almost as if she's identifying models for her later fictional representation of the time period, although it may not have been that um, planned. Yeah, again, you've got this feeling of sort of a back and forth with a with a text, sort of rallying. And uh, and, and those ones definitely feel like marginalia that, that sort of expects to be found. I mean, it just it seems writing touche and <laughs> things seem like the kind of thing you would expect you know you're expecting someone to come across and enjoy uh you you said um when we were talking about the colossus earlier and and the the death and life and the narrator subjugating herself you said yeah but she she does write the poem it's just it just reminded me to the her notes on Stephen Dedalus and his turning life into art and that being as spiritually important a thing as 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 can be could you um just tell us a bit more about Plath and portrait to the artist yeah um there's two copies there's one at emory that's a paperback that plath read first as a student and there's another later that she annotated to teach that's in her copy of the portable james joyce i was thinking of that moment too when she when she says like the work um comes out of this there are several pages of teaching notes where she's identifying passages and at times working from critics like Hugh kenner which her teacher had also noted, the portrait in perspective. I think it was a foundational text for her. And then she went on, um, she studied Ulysses. She was auditing the course when she studied Ulysses, but they had comprehensive exams later. And at the time she was planning to do her thesis on Joyce. So she took it on as a student, um, though she wasn't being graded when she studied Ulysses. But she was thorough and she was writing in, say, the... um, at a certain point after the first three chapters, she notes the um, the schema from Stuart Gilbert. And then throughout, uh, she was noting, working alongside the lectures she attended as she annotated her copy. To me, it was interesting as, yeah, I'm not a Joyce scholar, but I was reading the things she was reading and thinking about now how the emphasis since has changed as well. The emphasis of those readings or yeah and also the the sorts of topics that she was interested in in sort of identity and um the fact that where she notes his his jewish identity and, and, and irish identity and all of these elements that are historically situated but then later uh critics have spent time on looking at things like uh, various post-colonial implications what what was it like? What you say you're reading the text she was reading, sort of almost sort of side by side. What what kind of things were you? I mean, it's an enormous question, and I I was going to follow it up with another enormous and pretty cliched question. <laughs> of, of, <laughs> what got you started? But maybe I could lump them together and say, yeah, yeah. What you said, it's a sort of a decade long project. What what did uh, sort of get you started on it? It was really curiosity. Um, so much of the earlier approaches, um. There's one really good approach to pass underlining, and it it was really the first approach to pass underlining is Tracy Brain's book, The Other Sylvia Plaza, and she spent time with a couple of past books 
in particular, uh, The American by Henry James and Villette by Charlotte Bronte, which are both at Indiana. And I became interested in the books of Smith and the fact that when people cite underlining, they tend to do it to confirm something. Like so-and-so read this or so-and-so underlined this. But I was really more interested in trying to understand sort of why and how even though those things are somewhat beyond our reach. And also with writers like Joyce and Virginia Woolf, often there were assumptions people would make, but I wanted to know what in Joyce and Woolf she read. Ulysses is long and she underlined a lot and she annotated <laughs> a lot. And so I became incredibly interested in all of the different aspects of Ulysses and how much she knew at the time, which is she knew a lot and she had um, read widely. So to me, it was incredibly interesting to find out or to see some of the specifics. Um, they don't always fit nicely into a clean narrative, but they are interesting. There's just different moments that teach you things that uh, you didn't realize she would have encountered. Yeah, and, and reminds one of her, I think, classmates recounts that she could, uh, it's a lovely phrase in your book, there's something like strip search Ulysses <laughs> mythological, uh, for its mytholog mythological symbolism, you know, without blinking. She obviously managed to carve that one, <laughs> uh, one way or another. Yes, she probably appeared to others, you know, far more serious than... Mm that maybe they had thought themselves, but she was very serious about all of this. And so uh, after the, the, the period in life that we've, we've sort of focused on around Colossus and this, this teaching period, what was, what was next for her after the publication and, and, and leaving teaching? Well, she wanted to read and write more widely after teaching. She wanted to not be as, as um, constrained time-wise. She actually did some interesting things the next year, though. She worked in the Sanskrit department at Harvard, and that's when oh. she read a, <laughs> and that's when she read a passage to India too. And so that's an interesting moment in it all. And it was actually the same Sanskrit department that Elliot had studied in uh, as well. He didn't work with the same person she worked with, but I don't think it was that large. <laughs> but it was a, it was generation a generation before. But it was an interesting anchor in that year that next year she was a bit adrift she was trying to find an anchor and she was taking on jobs to sustain because she wanted some sense of income but also i think it gave her a sense of, of organization of her time uh when she was living in boston and boston also presented a whole new like range of contacts she that's when she met ann sexton she audited in lowell's class uh, they were able to meet other figures as well and so it presented a whole new landscape for her and different frames of reference oh interesting the, the only other i hadn't the only thing i was going to ask more about the um uh, the colossus was whether or not it's it prefigured ariel a little it it's it seems not just the sort of connection to daddy but also the plum and red colored stars seem to be the that's the that's the kind of bit of imagery that sort of bolts through Ariel. Is there a, is there a sense of, is that, I mean, you've already said it, it's, it's a sort of a later one for, for the Colossus, but it, it, for, yeah, for the collection. Um, but is there a sense of that being a, a slight bridge piece? I think so. And I think there are other poems I was noticing different moments that resonate with later ones. There's mm. a poem called Moonrise that has 
she spends time on on these berries in it. And it reminded me very much of poems like Blackberry and then Ariel. There's there's a certain I, I think it prefigures Ariel to a great degree, although the you know, it's so small compared to how much she produced between even if you go back further in plus lifetime, there's over five hundred poems. And this wow. book is relatively short compared to that and then Ariel too. And so I think it's an interesting snapshot and collection from her earlier work, but I do think it it prefigures her later work in in different ways. And there's a certain drama to it as well, even in poems like Mushrooms like Our Foot's in the Door. <laughs> and there's others too I was noticing in um a po in the poem I was revisiting called Blue Moles which is a lesser known poem, the one of the natural world. She envisions the, the, po the moles as a veteran. And I think that's very post-war. As she says, nightly the battle shouts start up in the ear of the veteran. And again, I enter the soft pelt of the mole. And she's, she's envisioning these moles at, at night. A bit like Moonrise, which, which is also a night, night poem or to some extent. And Moonrise actually ends in, in a way with something that resonates with the Colossus title poem. It ends, who drags their ancient father at the heel, white bearded, weary, the berries purple and bleed, the white stomach may ripen yet. That sounds very aerial to me. <laughs> um, there's certain almost grotesque element to the berries too and, and so I think she was maybe certain elements of the natural world were becoming part of her vocabulary in a different way so when she comes to write some of those later poems she's living in the country again too she's living in court green it's a different landscape and that's when she comes to write the bee poems and such but there's it's different than living in London where she does get interesting things like zookeeper's wife and they do live near the zoo, which has a different animal presence, but it's a city life, you know, city enca encapsulated or um, encased space versus um, the space is, is different when she moves out of the city. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Well, um, I, I've, I've loved uh, I've loved this. I, can, I just need to ask you, um, where, can you let people know where you can, where they can get a copy of your um, of your book? Rutledge and Amazon, but Rutledge, Rutledge. Um, especially the ebook. Uh, I highly recommend the ebook because it's more affordable. Sorry <laughs> 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 <It's laughs> to say academic books, but and I hope it's in more libraries. I know um, a pandemic has as people haven't been in libraries as much, but I hope it's it will be in paperback in in um, I think next fall. Um, so hopefully it'll be more affordable and in more libraries too. Yeah. Well, I, I got the ebook. And, um, <laughs> uh, even even highlighting it on uh, on a Kindle. I have to say, I have never highlighted or annotated a book more self-consciously. <laughs> well, I'm so honored that you did. <laughs> I hope it wasn't too too stressful. <laughs> It was just sometimes, uh, yeah, hi having your your finger hovering over the act of annotating and going, oh, <laughs> it's just a, I'm, I'm performing. <laughs> well, 
thank you so much for having me. This has been really exciting. I've enjoyed it a lot. I'm afraid that's all for today, folks. A huge thank you once again to my guest, Amanda Golden. And remember, you can buy a copy of her book by following the link I've left in the episode description box below. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Thank you.